brothers and sisters, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Continuing forward in the book of Acts, we're in chapter 6, we'll be looking at verses 8 through 15 today, and the title of the message is The Face of an Angel. I'll read from verse 1 of chapter 6 through to verse 8 of chapter 7. Please listen very carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. Now, in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders, and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. Then the high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. And said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession 
and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob. And Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. 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 Please be seated. We'll read this again, but about this text, Matthew Henry says, there was a miraculous splendor upon his countenance. This is about Stephen. Like that of our Savior when he was transfigured, or at least that of Moses when he came down from the mount, God designing thereby to put honor upon his faithful witness and confusion upon his persecutors and judges whose sin would be highly aggravated and would be indeed a rebellion against the light if, notwithstanding this, they proceeded against him. Whether he himself knew that the skin of his face shone or not, we are not told. But all that sat in the council saw it and probably took notice of it to one another. And an utter shame it was that when they saw and could not but see by it that he was owned of God. They did not call him from standing at the bar to come and sit in the chief seat with them upon the bench. Wisdom and holiness make a man's face to shine. And yet these will not secure men from the greatest indignities. And no wonder when the shining of Stephen's face could not be his protection. Though it had been easy to prove that if he had been guilty of putting any dishonor upon Moses, God would not thus have put Moses' honor upon him. And really today, uh, we're going to arrive back at this spot wondering, do you shine? Um, Or is your life dull? Are you hungry for God? Do you have an acute hunger for God. We read at the beginning of our service, didn't we, the end of Psalm 5 about His favor surrounding us like a shield. Can't help but wonder if this is kind of like God revealing His favor, the shining shield of His favor to those who observed Stephen during this time. So as you listen, consider Stephen Consider how he's described and be aware that today our God still makes Stephen's. He still crowns us, his people, with his favor. And he still grants us to be those who can shine with faces like angels no matter what we face. If we would but walk close and near to him daily. So we'll look at this text, verses 8 through 15. We'll first look at Stephen a little bit. He's described as full of faith and power. We'll talk a little bit about the synagogue of the freedmen who disputed with Stephen. 
And then we'll see that Stephen defeats their arguments through his conversation with them. And then we'll look, not too closely, but briefly we will look at their false accusations and the false arrest in verses 11 through 14. And then spend some time together pondering Stephen's face as of an angel and look at our own lives and wonder, can I shine like Stephen? Can I be crowned with this kind of favor in my life as well? So first of all, Stephen, full of faith and power. The text says, and Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Now let's recall together, looking back a few verses, the description from verse 5. We're in verse 8 now. Verse 5, when the congregation selected him out as one of the men to oversee the daily distribution of the widows. You recall the apostles said, hey, pick out seven men for us, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And here's what the text says. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And so we see this commendation is particularly directed at Stephen, setting him apart, it appears, as first among equals. He gets more of a commendation than the other six. So Stephen's faith and his walk in the Spirit, in the presence of God, were noteworthy then. And now the Lord takes our focus once again onto Stephen's spiritual strength. The Lord would have us to ponder this man, Stephen. The first name is Stephen, the glory of these Septemviri, a man full of faith in the Holy Ghost. And this is from commentary on verse 5. He had a strong faith in the doctrine of Christ and was full of it above most, full of fidelity, full of courage, so some, for he was full of the Holy Ghost, of his gifts and graces. He was an extraordinary man and excelled in everything that was good. And his name, did you know, signifies a crown. So his name is connected to the Greek word for crown. So we want to be crowned with the shining favor that Stephen was granted. Verses 5, so today's verse 8, but also verse 5 tells us that he's full of faith. So twice now, the text tells us in a very short period of time that he's filled with faith. And so if you're full of faith, you know, doubt and fears are pushed out, right? When we're filled with faith, those bad things are pushed out. So this is what Stephen is like. We look at this idea of faith. Let's ponder it together. We use the word a lot. Conviction of the truth of something. You believe it. In the New Testament, it's of a conviction or of a belief about man's relationship to God and to divine things. Generally with the included idea of trust and also a holy fervor born of faith and joined with it. It's like a fire. And in relationship to God, the conviction that God exists and that God is the creator and the ruler of all things, the provider and the bestower of eternal salvation upon us through Christ. And in regards to Christ, this faith, it is a strong and welcome conviction or belief that Jesus is the promised Messiah through whom we obtain eternal salvation only through him, obtaining eternal salvation into the kingdom of God. It also is a word that used, is often used to summarize the beliefs of Christians. 
It is the belief. It is our faith with the predominant idea of trust in God or in Christ. So we trust in God. We believe that what He says is true and we believe that He is with us and we are with Him and that He surrounds us. And it also thus ends up being a way to describe somebody. You are faithful if you are full of faith. You will have fidelity to the promises that you make. So you will have character. You will be the kind of person that someone can rely upon. When God gives you faith that you can rely on Him and that you know that He will never forsake you, He makes you the kind of person that others can rely upon. That others would know that you would not forsake them. God makes you trustworthy when you trust Him. So by God's grace, Stephen was especially filled with faith towards God. Fully trusting in Christ as the Messiah. Participating in the proclamation of the message. Stephen's mind, his heart, his soul, all of him fixed upon God in constancy, the anchor going behind the veil. Stephen trusted God. So much that we'll see later, he he saw him. This faith from God and in God made Stephen a faithful man to be relied upon. Verse 5 tells us also that he's full of the Holy Spirit, which is synonymous with being filled with faith. We know we can't have faith unless it comes to us in God, from God. Commentary again, full of fidelity, full of courage, for he was full of the Holy Ghost, of God's gifts, of the Holy Ghost's gifts and graces. He was an extraordinary man and excelled in everything that was good. And again, his name signifies a crown. Verse 8 tells us that he was also full of power would expect this, wouldn't you? This word power it is the root for dynamite. It is explosive. It brings rapid change. It is strength. It is power. It is ability. And he was filled up with divine power. He was full of faith and power by which he was enabled to do great things. Those that are full of faith are full of power. Because by faith, the power of God is engaged for us. This is from commentary. His faith did so fill him that it left no room for unbelief and made room for the influences of divine grace. So that as the prophet speaks, he was full of power by the spirit of the Lord of hosts. By faith, we are emptied of self and so are filled up with Christ, who is the wisdom of God and the power of God. This is not a new concept in the book of Acts. In chapter 1, verse 8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, we're told. Acts 3, verse 12, when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Why do you look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The power of Jesus Christ is being granted to Stephen. In and through Stephen, the same power, when we saw the Lord Jesus Christ healing every sickness and casting out 
every demon is now granted to Stephen as Christ dwells in him and through him. So see how being filled with faith connects with being filled with the Holy Spirit. They're inseparable. And how power flows from and connects with faith and the indwelling of God's Spirit. We should expect to see dynamic transformation when we are walking in faith, when we are filled with the Holy Spirit. We should not expect dullness or complacency or apathy of heart when we are filled with faith and filled with the Holy Spirit. And so what happened is he did great wonders and signs among the people. He was marked out by God as the Lord's power flowed through him. These great wonders and signs were done out loud, not in secret, but before the eyes of the people of Jerusalem. We're told it was among the people. So he was well known for his faith, for his faithfulness, for walking in and with the Spirit, for walking in the presence of Christ. God's power and the great signs and wonders done through him as he lived in the presence of God. He was a shining man in the midst of a world that was dark. Commentary says, being so, he did great wonders and miracles among the people, openly, in the sight of all. For Christ's miracles feared not the strictest scrutiny. It's not strange that Stephen, though he was not a preacher by office, did these great wonders. For we find that these were distinct gifts of the Spirit and divided severally. For to one was given the working of miracles and to another prophecy. That's from 1 Corinthians 12. And these signs followed not only those that preached, but those that believed. That's Mark 16, 17. So we should not find ourselves surprised that a non-apostle was doing this. Consider Stephen's work in distributing the food each day. Consider what that would have looked like for him at that time. He would have been amongst the people, surely, discovering needs of all kinds as he went, not just supplying that which lacked as he went and distributed to known needs, he would have discovered new needs. It's likely that he would have encountered, think of it, sicknesses of all kinds, even injuries, demonic possessions. He would have walked into the same world Jesus was walking in before he was crucified. Luke does not specify which great wonders and signs happen in Stephen's ministry. The commentary tells us, as he bears the responsibility for ministering to believers who are in need of food and clothing, he encounters needs in other areas as well. He meets people who are ill and who suffer from demonic oppression. Taking food to believers would naturally involve him in conversations about any difficulties and problems the believers and their relatives and friends have. Conversations in which mature believers inevitably explain and confirm the revelation of God in Jesus, the significance of Christ as Israel's Messiah and Savior, and the reality of the Holy Spirit as the transforming power of God bestowed by Jesus on those who believe in Him. The gospel message would have come from His mouth. As Stephen meets people who suffer from illnesses and other afflictions, you can see many are miraculously cured. The miracles that happen in Stephen's ministry are characteristic of the ministry of the Twelve, and they are God's answer, remember, 
to the prayers of the believers back in chapter 4. It's what they asked God to do, to stretch out his hand, to perform mighty signs and wonders and healings that Jesus' name would be glorified. So this is Stephen in the midst of the people. He's quite a man, isn't he? He's a shining example of the living Christ in and through his people. We can say that, can't we? Well, he's not loved by all. The synagogue of the freedmen dispute with him. The text says, Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. Now, here the church faces a new kind of threat, similar but different. Another wing of apostate Judaism arises from the Jews whose origins are from outside Jerusalem. We've bumped into the Hellenists before in the prior text. So these are Hellenists or Hellenized Jews, those who lived or had their origins from the Greek world. They're from Libya. They're from Egypt. They're from southeastern Turkey. That's where Cilicia is. And did you know that Tarsus is in Cilicia? And you know that Saul was from Tarsus, correct? There's a connection there. And also we're told it's Asia, which is not today's Asia. That's western Turkey. So these are areas of the Mediterranean stretching from Libya through to Egypt and then back around to the north uh, eastern Mediterranean area and even a little bit further there into the western coastal area of Turkey in the Mediterranean. That's where they're from. Commentary says, <coughs> the opponents who settled and worshipped in Jerusalem came from a wide range of locations. It is discussed whether this is one synagogue with a variety of nationalities or a group that emerges from several synagogues. Most likely either one or two synagogues are meant. And again, these are in Jerusalem. So these are synagogues in Jerusalem. Cyrenians came from northern Africa, and the Alexandrians came from Egypt. The Cyrenians are mentioned six times in the New Testament, the Alexandrians multiple times. Cilicians came from the northeastern Mediterranean in areas such as Tarsus, mentioned eight times in the New Testament. So might Paul have participated in what happened? Of those mentioned here, Asia is by far the most discussed region in the New Testament 18 times. Asia is mentioned. These Jews stand up in opposition to dispute with Stephen. Asian Jews will also form strong opposition to Paul later in the book of Acts. So this idea of disputing is to seek, uh, to examine, uh, to bring someone under close scrutiny, to question It's an intense discussion, and it ends up being a disagreement and a disputing for the purpose of examining another person. It's also used, commentary tells us, to describe how Jesus was challenged. So again, it's another link with Christ. Christ healed. Christ shone forth divine glory. Christ did signs and wonders. Christ took care. Christ fed people. Christ was examined by those who hated the gospel. And like Christ, Stephen defeats their arguments. The text says they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. 
And we shouldn't be surprised by this. Christ indwells his servant Stephen by the Holy Spirit. The same Christ who granted him to be chosen because he's living through him. The same Christ who granted him to be able to take care of the widows in a loving way. The same Christ who granted him this faith and this power in the midst of the people. Miracles. The same Christ now speaks through him. So it's as if Jesus is speaking. Just like none of Christ's opponents were able to resist his wisdom, none of the opponents of his church, starting with Stephen, including you and me, filled with his spirit, will be able to resist his divinely bestowed wisdom. Heaven's wisdom treads the world's wisdom underfoot, brothers and sisters. Does this mean they will admit defeat and cry out that they have been logically defeated and they've, they bow before you and say, you win the debate? No. Does it mean they will come to faith and trust in Christ? No. It just means that when logic and reason are applied to the words that were exchanged, they lose. That's what it means. We argue from Scripture lovingly, kindly, and we're able to resist all of the disputing that takes place when it comes to defending the gospel, the message of Christ from his word. As Stephen engaged, the commentary says, as he engaged these diaspora Jews in debate, he experienced the fulfillment of Jesus' promise in Luke 21. They would give his disciples words and a wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. Jesus had promised this to them. Stephen also experienced the answer to the prayers of the believers in Acts 4. We've mentioned that already. Who would ask God for boldness in the proclamation of the word of God. So isn't it beautiful to see the Lord answering these prayers so quickly that they had asked and to see Christ's promises being fulfilled in his people. What happens next? Well, as we said, they didn't admit defeat. They didn't fall down and say, wow, what wonderful wisdom from God's word. They didn't say, oh, let me worship your Messiah. Let me worship the Messiah with you. They did not. They persisted in their rebellion. And they became angrier because they knew they lost. So they weren't interested in truth. They were interested in winning. The text tells us they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. They couldn't win the public debate. So, like happened to Jesus, you see this? See this theme? Stephen, crowned with Christ-likeness, is walking the path that Jesus walked. He's taken up his cross and is following Jesus. What did they do to Jesus? They brought false witnesses. They lied about him. They knew they lied. It wasn't an accidental lie. These are vicious, malicious liars. And they do the same thing to Stephen. And they continue to do the same thing to Christ's servants today. So just like Jesus, the adversaries cannot overcome through truth and through reason. 
So in their rebellion, their worsening rebellion, their deepening rebellion, their intensifying rebellion, they must resort to lies and abuse of power, and they knew they had to overcome Gamaliel's advice some way. They wanted these people dead. They wanted to kill all of them, just like they did Jesus. So we see that they suborn false witnesses. Do you know what it means to suborn? S-U-B-O-R-N. Here's suborning. Now listen, I need you. Right, so one of the, the Hellenized Jews, one of these synagogue leaders, comes to just some person in the crowd. Look, I need you to tell these things. I need you to say these things about Stephen. When bring him before the court, I need you to say these things. In order to get this warrant to go and arrest him, I need you to say these things about him. Probably offered him money. Probably offered him position. They may have just promised not to run their family out of the synagogue. Who knows? They stirred up the people against him that if the Sanhedrin should still think fit, according to Gamaliel's advice, to let him alone, yet they might run him down by a popular rage and tumult. So that's what they do. They also found means to stir up the elders and scribes against him that if the people should countenance and protect him, they might then prevail by their authority. So what did they say? What lies are we going to tell? This is going to sound familiar. It's the same kind of lies they told against Jesus. We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. Not only has he done it occasionally, this is all he does. He's constantly blasphemous against Moses, against God, against Jerusalem, against the temple, and against the law. We've heard him say, this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. So they've just brought out the whole thing. They hate Moses. They hate God. They hate Jerusalem. They hate the temple. They hate the law. They hate the customs. They hate everything. They're blasphemous people who want to destroy our way of life. Now this idea that Jesus will destroy the place, it's worth noting that. You see, this is an important part of the message that they were commanded by Christ to deliver to the Jews. That a destruction was coming. Jesus was going to return and destroy Judea, Jerusalem, the temple. And they were warned. Like in Luke 21, we looked at that when we went through Luke. And they twist Stephen's word. They're going to change the customs of Moses as if Christ came to destroy the law. Remember Jesus said, I did not come to destroy the law. Commentary says, by way of application, if we think this through for Christianity at any time. Authentic Christian preaching annoys people who hear but refuse to understand or accept the gospel. If this was true for Jesus, for Peter, for Stephen, and for other Christian leaders in the early church, it will be true for any genuine preaching of the gospel throughout history. If contextualization means that the gospel message is adapted to such an extent that everyone agrees with you, then it is no longer the word of God which challenges sinners about their sin and which promises salvation through faith in Christ, the crucified, risen, ascended, and exalted Messiah. In countries in which freedom of speech is enshrined in the Constitution, such opposition to the preaching of the gospel will not result in legal action, but there will be opposition nevertheless. 
And we can see, can we not, the enemies of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ coming against faithful preaching in today's world. In various ways, whether they cancel you, whether they shame you, whether they marginalize you, or whether they even try to make it illegal for you to even read the Bible out loud. Make it illegal for you to go and try to save the life of an innocent child about to be murdered. There's an example as well. So these freedoms, these gospel freedoms, they'll eventually come and try to take those away too. If there's not repentance. So how does, how does Stephen respond to this? They've lied about him. They've arrested him wrongfully. They've seized him. And they've brought him to a trial. How, does, how would you respond to that? I don't know if my face would look like an angel. How would yours? But you know, that can be true of us, brothers and sisters. It can be true of you, little child, that you can have the face of an angel. In fact, parents, read the stories of the young martyrs to your children. I think we can see the faces of angels there in those stories as well. This faith is not limited to a certain age. All of us can have the face of an angel. How did, how did Stephen respond? And all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him, so their gaze is fixed on him, saw his face as the face of an angel. You know, angels are before the presence of God. People in the Bible fall down like they're dead sometimes, terrified just in the presence of an angel. Being in the presence of God changes us. So Stephen, he's not afraid. He's got the face of an angel. So, here we are before the Sanhedrin again. We've been here before. We've been here in Luke, right? We've been here in the early sections of the book of Acts already multiple times. Here we are again. These same rebellious fools acting the same way. They've even been, had the gospel preached to them multiple times at this point in time. And the power of God displayed before them. And what are they doing? Telling more lies. Malicious lies. That's where unbelief leads. That's where it goes. This time, the council's been stirred up by these lies. Just like what happened to Jesus. Remember Christ like a lamb? Like a silent lamb? His gentle and mild demeanor before his false accusers. It's the same kind of demeanor that we have from Stephen. Shining with the glory of Christ. But really, what is meant that Stephen had the face of an angel? I think we... Well, it's not like he got a face transplant, right? It, he, it was something about his face that was similar to, similar to the faces of angels in heaven. So, at the very least, I think we can say it means that he was calm. He was poised. He had a joyful demeanor. Because what's it like to be before the face of God? That's why he's shining. He's shining... Because the face of God, that's where his gaze is. His gaze, their gaze is fixed on him. His gaze is not fixed on them. His gaze is fixed on his God. He's dwelling in the presence of God. 
And so he's not afraid. He's fearless. He's still filled with faith. His faith didn't shrink. It grew. The Holy Spirit wasn't quenched. The Holy Spirit came in greater power. And as we'll see, his wisdom is on display when we go through the words that he spoke with the shining face. So at the very least, I think we can say he's calm and he's poised. He's got a joyful demeanor. His joy is on fire. These people are not impacting him on the inside. He's demonstrating to them divine blessing, Mount Zion on display. That's what he's showing. So at the very least, we know he's dwelling in God's presence inwardly in such great power, in such great experience that the threats of this murderous Supreme Court are nothing to him. His face is like an angel. The commentary says, perhaps it intimates no more than that he had an extraordinarily pleasant, cheerful countenance. And there was not in it the least sign either of fear for himself or anger at his persecutors. He looked as if he had never been better pleased in his life than he was now when he was called out to bear his testimony to the gospel of Christ, thus publicly, and stood fair for the crown of martyrdom. Such an undisturbed serenity, such an undaunted courage, such an unaccountable mixture of mildness and majesty. There was in his countenance that everyone said he looked like an angel. Enough, surely, to convince the Sadducees that there are angels when they saw before their eyes an incarnate angel. So we can be like this. Was it C.S. Lewis that said, if we could see one another as we will be in glory, we would be tempted to fall down and worship one another. The glory that is ours as God brings us into humanity, real humanity, less and less corrupted by sin, more and more transformed into Christ's image. Humanity unstained by sin. Humanity demonstrating the glory of God will make you want to run away and fall down and worship. Stephen was not afraid. Stephen was filled with faith. And Stephen stood as the Lord and ruler of that assembly because of his faith in Christ. He was living as a king and a priest in the midst of them at that moment. He understood who was in charge. He was not afraid. Think of it. How often do we get afraid? I mean, have you ever faced anything like this? I get a dent in the hood of my car and I get afraid. <laughs> right? Think about the things that kind of trouble us, right? Oh, that God would give us more faith. Fill us with faith, Lord. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord. Fill us with wisdom, Lord. Okay. But number two, in addition, perhaps Stephen's countenance shone because he was in God's divine presence even outwardly. Not just inwardly, 
but even outwardly. And I say that because look at verses 55 and 56 from chapter 7. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. When did the heavens open? Perhaps the moment he was brought before the council. Perhaps he was seeing this the whole time he was testifying to them and giving them the wisdom of God about the history of the people of Israel. Commentary says it should rather seem, so Matthew Henry says rather. So Matthew Henry says rather. Yeah, what we've said already about calm and poise because of dwelling inwardly in the presence of God, that's true. (coughs) But probably more. Probably there was this outward experience that he was granted of dwelling somehow physically, outwardly in the presence of God. It should rather seem that there was a miraculous splendor and brightness upon his countenance like that of our Savior when he was transfigured or at least that of Moses when he came down from the mount. God designing thereby to put honor upon his faithful witness and confusion upon his persecutors and judges whose sin would be highly aggravated and would be indeed a rebellion against the light if notwithstanding this they proceeded against him. You've heard this this morning already. Whether he himself knew that the skin of his face shone or not, we are not told. But all that sat in the council saw it and probably took notice of it to one another. And an utter, that word errant means utter, an utter shame it was that when they saw and could not but see by it that he was owned of God, they did not call him from standing at that bar to come and sit in the chief seat upon the bench with them. Wisdom and holiness make a man's face to shine. And yet these will not secure men from the greatest indignities. And no wonder when the shining of Stephen's face could not be his protection. Though it had been easy to prove that if he had been guilty of putting any dishonor upon Moses, God would not thus have put Moses' honor upon him. Hear what, hear what Stephen says again. He, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. This should remind you of Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5. And he said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. It's worth noticing that he's standing because we're typically told that he's seated at God's right hand. And so it's as if Christ is taking note, especially of this moment. Now I want to ask you something. Even though you may not see it with your eyes like Stephen saw it with his eyes, do you believe that this is true? Do you believe that in heaven, the glory of God shines in great and glorious grandeur and that Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, is at his right hand and that he is reigning there at his Father's right hand, that he is there now, even though you cannot see him? Do you believe that? So even though we may not physically shine in our faces like Moses did, like Jesus did, it sounds like, like Stephen did, we can have the same faith. We can behave the same way. Which kind of takes us back to point one about what it meant for him to have 
a face shining like an angel. So may God crown us with faith. May he crown us with being filled with his spirit. May he crown us with wisdom. May he grant to us to participate, who knows, with signs and wonders and miraculous healings. But where I want to take us by way of application today is back to what I asked you at the very beginning. What is the state of your heart? What is the state of your hunger for God? So foundational, brothers and sisters, to who we are. So foundational. Children, do you hunger for God? Let me ask you something. Who here is excited that today is a meal Sunday? I've had some very nice sniffs this morning. I was excited. Caleb said, Daddy, is today meal Sunday? I said, yes, sir. He goes, all right. So God gives us hunger, right? Are you hungry for God? Children, as you grow up, when God gives you faith, you will be hungry for more of Him. You will want to seek His face. And this is the opposite of being dull-hearted. It's the opposite of being complacent. It's the opposite of being apathetic. Do you know the joy of communing with the Lord? See, I'm not asking you about your practices this morning. I don't want to know about your quiet time. I don't want to know how much time you spend alone with the Lord. I'm not asking you those, I'm not asking you those questions. I want to know about your heart. I want you to ask yourself about your heart. Your inner hunger. Your experience. Do you know the joy of the Lord? Or do you, like me, need to pray with David, restore to me the joy of my salvation? Personally, what's going on inside of you? Is there joy? Do you know the joy of the Lord? You think Stephen knew the joy of the Lord? You think Stephen was communing with God? You think Stephen was hungry for more of the Lord? You think Stephen was so caught up in the glory of God that he could care less whether you killed him? To live as Christ, to die as gain. What kind of person are you? Is your heart tethered to heaven? Or is it stuck to this world? Children, hear me. You will be misled by your heart if it is not tethered to heaven. Firmly anchored behind the veil through faith. That's what faith does. Faith by the Spirit tethers our souls to God. To commune with Him. To love Him. To desire Him. You know, this will occur not just in your personal life. It will be a part of your family life. May our church be a shining church. May our church be crowned with the joy of the Lord. If anyone walks in the doors, I don't care if they know about eschatology. I don't care if they know about right ethics. Are they going to be caught up in the joy of the Lord in our midst? You see, you you with me? That's the cornerstone of what it means to walk. 
to be caught up in communion with God is the sweetest thing and we want everyone else through the gospel, through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ to have their sins forgiven, to know that they are the beloved of God and the love of God for them is an endless ocean, a universe of universes of pleasure for them. Beloved of God, that's you. Do you seek his face moment by moment? A couple of scripture verses for you, please, to ponder as a way of applying this sermon in your life. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, have mercy also upon me and answer me. This is from Psalm 27. Worth memorizing. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to your face, Lord, I will seek. What is he crying out to God about? I'm seeking your face, Lord. This is passion. This is a fervent soul for God. The psalmist goes on, do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You've been my help. Do not leave me, nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. Okay. Seek the Lord's face. Are you seeking the Lord's face? When you read your scriptures, when you pray, when you're with your friends and family, when you're here at this moment right now, are we seeking? Is that why we come through those doors? Is that why we eat the bread and drink the wine? We talk about means of grace. Let's talk about means of seeking God's face. That's really what grace does for us. Takes us into the presence of our Father who loves us. If you could see God's face towards you, what would be the look on his face towards you? Children, think about it. If you could be in God's presence and you could see his face, what would be the look of his face towards you? I'll tell you a better question. And this is the one that's so sweet. What is the face of the father towards his son? It's not about you. It's not about what you do or don't do. It's not about who you are or what you have done. It is about who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. Amen. That's your father's look for you. Is the same affection and endless favor and everlasting love that he has for his son belongs to you. Will you seek that face? Do you rejoice that your Father in Heaven invites you to be close to Him? To be actually before His face? Think of it. He invites you into His lap as your Father. He sings over you with joy. He rejoices over you. He chose you in eternity past so that He could bestow His love and His favor upon your soul. Do you rejoice that he will never leave you or forsake you? That this is not intermittent? It doesn't matter what happened yesterday. Forgetting what is behind. This moment. Right now you might be thinking, yeah, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. No, you don't. Right now, at this moment, rejoice in your Father's smile over you in Christ. Right now. Right now, church. 
We have to leave here and go do something. It's not because of who you are. It's because of who he is. It's not because of anything you can do or you are doing or you will do. It's because of what he has done. And because of this, the mighty creator of the universe who spoke it all into existence and whose beauty will cause us to worship and marvel forever and ever and whose wisdom will never end and whose presence is the very reason for our existence, we will forever be in his presence. Eternal life starts now. Do you want to continue to taste it? He'll always take care of you. You know, you'll hunger and thirst for him and he'll bless you like I hope he is now with the knowledge of his favor and his presence in your life and you'll want more. And you'll want more. You'll never be satisfied, but you'll always be satisfied. Next, Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry, but it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord that I may declare all your works. It's an important book for, um, for us. is The Pursuit of God by Tozer. I haven't read it. I want to read it. I've heard people quote it. He talks about this mighty longing after God. Is that you? Do you have a mighty longing after God? Or do you have a lack of holy desire? Where does, if we could take a compass inside your soul and it would turn and point and have a perfect vector towards your strongest desire, where would it point? Does your heart say it is good for me to draw near to God? Would you want that to mark your life moment by moment? Brother Lawrence, practicing the presence of God, I commend the book to you. It's worth reading. It's a little bit of mysticism. You've got to watch out there. But he, is, he shows us this just beautiful life like Stephen. It's a Stephen kind of life. Psalm 105.4 Listen, don't just seek the Lord's face tomorrow morning or maybe right now or this afternoon. Can we make this a way of life? Living in His presence. Conscious. You hear about, we read in the scriptures of praying without ceasing. That's what this means, is being in His presence. Consciously in His presence. The text says, seek His face evermore. Seek the Lord in His strength. Seek His face evermore. Psalm 105, verse 4. Yeah, that's forever. So what we're talking about now is just the practice of heaven. And really, the word we have for it is, we forget, we don't think about it, it's worship. This is worship. It's to seek His face. So to shine like Stephen, we must feast upon the Lord Himself like Stephen. May it be so for each one of us in our life with Him personally and in our marriages and in our family living and in our church and in every church on this earth that the fire of God's Holy Spirit would shine forth 
and that this kind of faith would be on display in great, great increasing measure until his glorious return. And may we participate in it starting right now. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so thankful that you will never leave us or forsake us. Lord, we acknowledge that so often we leave you. So often we we don't seek you, Lord. So often our hearts are cold and indifferent towards you. So often we're not hungry for you, Lord. We thank you for Stephen and those like him who demonstrate to us the beauty of faith, the glory of being filled with your Spirit, and an invincible joy that nothing in this world can touch. Bless us, we pray, O God, that from Mount Zion, even now, that you would increase our faith, that you would grant to us a greater measure of your Spirit, that you would drive out our doubts, and that with the eyes of faith, we would know heaven's smile and go forth in joy. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>